Uh, welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rabbit. Thank you so much for joining me for this particular podcast. One of the things that we don't often talk about properly is how organisations need to create an environment for people in their workplace to feel safe and feel comfortable and to be able to do their work effectively. And we're seeing a few examples of, you know, where, where changes occurring, whether it be in the private sector, public sector, uh, throughout the media. And the question keeps arising, at least in the back of my mind, if nothing else, at how people cope when change happens and what employers need to do. Well, you know, I'm kind of lucky. I'm having a chat with someone who knows that stuff um, uh, fairly intimately and she's from Rehab Management. Renee Thornton is sort of going to take us through a bunch of things that employers need to worry about in terms of work safe and the psychosocial elements of the workplace. And we'll touch on a few other bits and pieces that are linked to some of the stuff you might be seeing in the media. Renee, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me on today, Tom. Uh, absolute pleasure. Now, before we get into some sector-specific issues, I have a feeling that they're not going to be that different from one sector to another anyway. Uh, WorkSafe has issued some guidance nationally that has ramifications for employers in terms of how they set the environment up for people to feel comfortable with what they do. Can you give us a brief outline of what WorkSafe has done? Yeah, yep. So in terms of what, um, what's been sort of put into play, it's um, regulations around management of psychosocial hazards and injuries within the workplace. Now, um, in a nutshell, and it's most simplistic, um, sort of if you really break down what it is, it's treating psychosocial or psychological hazards within the workplace in the same way that employers would treat uh, a physical injury risk. Um, it's asking employers to assess um, the risk hazards in the workplace and risks in the workplace that might lead to an injury in the same way that we've historically always done it um, with relation to a physical injury. And there's probably two parts to that as to, you know, why they brought the regulations in. But Historically, we're more of a manual workforce, right? So it's really, um, you've got lots of history around physical injuries and how we can prevent them and mitigate them and put in risk prevention strategies. Really what the regulations are asking for is to apply the same methodology to psychosocial hazards within the workplace. Um, psychosocial hazard, uh, psychosocial is is jargon for, for many people. How do we? Lots. How do we break? How do we? But yeah, well, psychosocial. <laughs> What's that mean? Oh, I clutch my head and wonder. Yeah, there's another. There's another word to remember. How do we break it down for people hmm. when we talk about what we mean with psychosocial yep. hazards? If we can go there. So, psychosocial hazard um, 
is is really any factor or situation that could arise in the workplace that could pose a risk to an employee's uh, mental um, or emotional well-being. So if you really, what does that mean? If you break that down, it could be like aspects of the job design, relationships that people have in the workplace, um, you know, maybe people aren't getting along, communication, um, leadership, workload, which is a really um, interesting run around psychosocial hazards. And, and overarching that is like the organisational culture. So um, in terms of a psychosocial hazard, it could be around stress, um, which or a stress-related event like bullying or harassment that occurs. Um, even um, ones that we might see you know, quite frequently in some sectors around occupational violence um, or exposure to traumatic events, if you think of police, fire and rescue, ambulance services. Now, how do you, ma how do you actually manage that? Because one of, mm. the, one of the things that you see from time to time is cases where people who are investigators, for example, mm -hmm. and um, they may be looking at material that is explicit um, on a frequent basis. They may be looking at uh, you know, things related to uh, material, what they call, what they call, I think, child sexual assault material. Yep. That, that yep. Sort of, yeah. Um, what are the sorts of strategies that people put in place when there yep. when there are when there are jobs in which people are exposed to things? Because you you know unpleasant things are always going mm. to be That's going it. to be around. What do people do to manage that in terms yep. of strategy? Yeah. So that example you gave there would be a really high risk scenario, right, where you've got somebody investigating um, traumatic events that have occurred or, you know, looking at images um, that may have occurred. So in terms of how an employer could go about managing that, um, and, and I do know that many employers have been in this sort of sector, in that type of industry, would have been doing this for a number of years, um, most likely already, because they know they've got a high risk in that work environment. So um, if we use that example of someone that's exposed to traumatic events, maybe they're looking at images as that's part of their role. Um, what um, an employer can do is really around that early intervention piece. So, okay, we know we've got a high risk um, with our workforce. Um, they might look at, you know, um, determining in the first instance if somebody is... Um, got the psychological function to be able to cope with that type of work environment. So they might be doing some screening to make sure that they're taking the right people in um, to that workforce in the first instance. And if you think of like police or fire and rescue, that's a typical, um, typical thing that they would do prior to employment. So we've already understood, yep, we've got a high risk, okay. So they would assess them potentially before going into that workforce. But then it's really about, okay, we know we've got a high risk here. What are we doing to make sure that we're identifying early if somebody is experiencing any trauma or stresses related um, to that role? So they might be, the employer might be doing sort of more frequent um, screening around somebody's psychological health and well-being. Um, 
an employer might also be looking at, okay, we've got high risk here. We can't actually mitigate the risk because we need somebody to do this job. Maybe maybe there's another way. Maybe AI has come in and can sort that out for us, but I don't think we're there yet. Um, so they might look at different strategies to reduce the risk to their workforce um, and put those in place. Is it you know, limiting your time of exposure, for example? Correct. Exactly. How long do you how long do you spend in front of a screen looking at images that are uh, by their nature traumatic? Exactly. So, and it wouldn't be a you know just one solution um, in this instance, Tom. So they they might be looking at okay, well, we've got this issue. How do we mitigate the risk? So it might be around um, yeah, reducing time on that, um, completing that task, having more breaks. Also making sure that there's an organisational culture that's supportive in place. So, you know, what are they doing to support um, employee wellbeing within the workplace, as well as some employers might go as far as to offering other initiatives um, to support their employees around, you know, making sure that they've got access to understanding what, you know, what good sleep hygiene looks like, what good health looks like, um, other wellbeing opportunities for their employees as well. So it's not, um, we're never going to be able to mitigate the risk or get rid of risk altogether. It, it's implicit in, in what we do every day, but it's what, an, what steps an employer can take once they've identified what that risk is to then reduce it and to support their workforce. Because at the end of the day, we, you know, as an employer, um, we want people to be productive and healthy. And we know that if people are sort of healthy, they've got good handle on their well-being, um, they're going to be a more productive workforce as well. If we can to, to uh, move to something that's a bit more contemporary, I mean, if you, mm -hmm. yeah, we've spoken about a job where there's a great uh, risk in terms of people getting traumatised and mm -hmm. possibly jaded about the world. If all they're seeing is the the uh, emergency room side of life, yep. um, but we're seeing examples now, and I think it, the consulting sector is going through it where there is intense focus on it, and there's mm -hmm. um, negative headlines about an organisation every single day, not just, for example, PwC, but others. Um, what are strategies people can put in place to manage the the stress levels uh, and the sort of help employees manage their own well psychological well-being when mm. the brand they work for is constantly getting belted. I mean, it can't be easy sitting in a workplace while that's happening. I, I, I wouldn't think it is, um, but it's, it's probably not just consulting industries. A lot of um, companies, you know, will have negative media um, at some point in time. So um, really, how does an employer manage that? I think it's around sort of acknowledging um, unusual times that are occurring and having sort of early warning signs in place around their workforce and how they're coping, how they're managing, but also um, really proactive conversations from, from a leadership perspective to be really open um, and transparent about, you know, what might be happening, whether it's in the media or, or what, you know, whatever the example is, um, but then, you know, identifying with that workforce, okay, we've got a high period of stress. 
what can we do as an employer to support our employees? So it might be around some additional wellbeing programs, might be around, you know, if there's a, an event, um, debriefing um, and having very open conversations using um, services, you know, such as a psychologist to debrief, um, but they also might have consultation coming in around, okay, well, what can we do to support health and wellbeing when people are going through high um, workplace stress? And it's really, um, you know, educating around the fundamentals of, you know, taking good care of yourself, not just within the workplace, but also outside of work. As we know now, you know, our day-to-day lives are, are often taken over by work. Um, speaking of that, before we touch on another sector that's of interest um, to me, um, being government, I mean, how, how important is a recent measure that's been raised in the media of allowing employees to disconnect to to be able to say I don't need to be connected to work 24 hours a day on devices or whatever mm-hmm. how critical is that I think it would be important for for most people I don't I don't think we've gone as far as say France in terms of you know implementing it into legislation um, but that disconnection from the workplace and to um, everybody's also going to be different as well. So that's one thing that we need to sort of factor into this around, you know, typically people talk about like work-life balance. Well, what does that mean? It means something very, very different um, probably to me than it does to, to even you, Tom. So um, I, I do think disconnection is important. Um, yeah. But also, your type of role is going to is going to play um, into that as well. I think someone, you know, media-wise, you, you you're constantly going to be on the go, waiting for that sort of next news story. That's part and parcel with the role as well, right? Just a little. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> but, but there's also a need to to take time out and um, yep, and uh, where possible, we'll sort of you know, vary the vary the pace a little or get out of the home office and not staring at at monitors all the time and and that kind of thing. If we go from, you know, just to the example that we've seen of uh, the private sector entities that are copying a shellacking at the moment and and the strategies surrounding that, are there any... are there any specific characteristics when it comes to, to, to government or is government much the same when you're looking at psychosocial risks? Look, I think um, all sectors, government as well, but government probably most in particular are probably uh, have a lot of change constantly happening, like we see change in government, state government, federal government, which does yeah. cause, um, you know, a continuous cycle of change. Um, and people can become a bit change fatigued as well. Um, but also within those sectors, I think people also become resilient to change too, because they've seen it, you know, once, twice, three or four times. So um, it, within the government sectors, I do think that um, particularly from a federal space and, and our state government spaces as well. Um, They do have uh, a lot of focus on early intervention um, and prioritisation of probably leading the way in a federal space around um, early intervention for their employees, you know, if they have 
an illness or there's some changes in productivity or something, you know, um, or an injury to really help support um, that employee to, to be able to perform their role. So I do think there's been some strong, strong programs in place for many, many years across the federal sector. Has there been a change? I mean, I know that over the years people have spoken about the shifts in the the nature of the, the, the arrangements that govern um, the public sector that they've been sort of contracted opposed to the long-term tenure in, in some cases. Um, does that impact on the psychology of the way in which somebody does the work they do? What you've observed? I, I probably wouldn't have enough knowledge in that space to really sort of um, talk about it. One of our psychologists probably could. I'm an occupational therapist by background. But um, I, I definitely think job stability um, and that what that means to somebody um, can have a play in in how you go about your do- job and, you know, how how safe you feel that employment is um, for you. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't – I it would definitely have a factor within that. Uh, well, obviously, there's uh, information out there, Renee, for people that are – either running running entities or they're in charge of HR or they're individuals themselves trying to understand the optimal uh, conditions for work, where do they find the material that that might help them illuminate Mm. that? Yeah, so SafeWorks got some great material that they've released in terms of, um, you know, how to how to best practice sort of manage psychosocial hazards around, um, you know, health and well-being within the workplace. Um, and also so did the each individual state um, regulators from a workers' compensation perspective. Some really good materials out there that um, employers can utilise that are readily available on the internet um, and also some really good tools as well around how to assess um, psychosocial hazards or psychological well-being within the workplace as well. But I definitely encourage people to have a look at the Safe Work um, website. I've been talking to Renee Thornton, who's with um, an organisation called Re- Rehab Management. Now, Renee, where do people find material on your organisation if they want to get in touch? Yep. Um, so they can visit our, our website. So it's rehabmanagement.com.au. Okay. There we are. Now, Renee, thank you so much for joining me for, for this particular chat. And I uh, hope we can do that this again at some point. Thanks, Tom.